All right, we're going to get started with the talk here, everybody. Uh, my name is Jordan, and I want to say welcome. Can you say welcome to me? Say welcome, Jordan. Thank you very much. That was pathetic and beautiful at the same time. So we're stepping into fall, everybody. How's that feel? Feeling okay about that? Um, I always, so Julie, like she put the like fall bar up here, like that's on a pedestal. Um, I, I always have great expectations for the fall because like as much as I don't like the restrictions of schedules and all that stuff, structure is actually really good for me. So I, I usually really like the fall. It's the start of the school year. The ministry calendar kind of follows that. Uh, people are getting to meet back up with each other. Um, it, it's usually pretty pretty good in my, in my world. I don't, know, I don't know about yours, but maybe this fall uh, for you has been more like stepping into this. Uh, show that slide, Lindsay. Did any, of, did any of you see this? The first uh, meme there. Do you remember this? 120, like that meme that came out on January 1 that's like 2020 is the never-ending year. It's like, do you get the joke? I, I mean, it's very funny to me, but... Um, I don't know, maybe for you uh, this fall had great expectations and the old thing that you're hoping would change is just maybe stretching out. I'm not sure what your situation is. It could be, I don't know, election hangover. There's still kind of like COVID in the air. There's lots of things that maybe are still like you're wrestling with coming into this fall. Um, so maybe it's like whatever whatever place you're at, you're like, I'm just done with people. Has anybody said that in the last 18, 24 months? Legale's <laughs> hand was up before I like even got the sentence out. Or uh, I see this phrase sometimes. I always want to like push back a little bit, but like when people say people are the worst, I'm like, well, does that include you? Because that's like kind of a broad, <laughs> that's like kind of a broad thing to say, right? Um, today, uh, we're going to step into a story about a person who was just done with uh, people and who wanted to get a fresh start, assumed that they were about to have a fresh start, but it didn't happen and this person ended up running away. So there's going to be like four parts to this talk. See, now I'm tempted by these snacks that I have up here, so this talk's going to be a little longer. <sighs> I don't know how to eliminate that. I seriously think about it every Sunday. Be Is there a way, Kurt? Yeah, You're going to mute. Good timing. You guys like it when I slurp? The people like it, Kurt. Don't mute it. So am I misreading the crowd? Probably. Um, so this talk is going to kind of have like four scenes that I just want you to be aware of, okay? Scene number one is going to be like background story, uh, background to the story, background details that are going to help you understand what's happening. Uh, number two is like a showdown between the gods. That'll be a fun scene. Uh, number three is a man walking away and collapsing in the wilderness under a tree and then getting a snack of bread and water. And number four, the kind of scene we'll end with, is the same man running in a cave wanting to die. Sound fun? Very. Because <laughs> that's where we're at right now. Um, it'll be fun and really helpful, I promise you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in like that first scene with the background information. I'm going to just like paraphrase some stuff about this Bible story, okay? Because I have a choice. When I'm going to come and give you a talk to you, I could read you every word of a big long passage, or I could just kind of tell you what it means. Sometimes I like to do both, but right now I'm just going to kind of explain a little bit of Bible history, okay? Sound good? 
Can you give me a snap if we're feeling good? Awesome. All right, so the book of uh, First and Second Kings is in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's the retelling of the history of the nation of Israel. So God's people, God's chosen people is this really small group, group in uh, Israel, in the Middle East, and um, this is kind of a retelling of the chapters of all of their kings uh, over their history. And the king of Israel was supposed to, the whole country, nation of Israel was supposed to uh, lead, excuse me, was supposed to listen to the voice of God and ultimately to become a blessing to the world. Like that's why God chose this small, kind of insignificant country in order that he would bring good news to the whole world. But that didn't happen uh, fully until Jesus, and it was a very messy process with all these kings up until then. So instead, uh, with these kings that you had in, this, in these books, you saw a familiar chapter of these people in power that would use their power for their own advantage uh, and would focus uh, on the worship of the idol gods in the surrounding nations. So the God's people uh, were unique in that they believe that God is, is one, that there's one God expressed in three beings. Uh, all the other nations around there uh, had local gods that you could kind of carry with you, represented a lot of times by like a little idol. And the period that we're going to talk about this time, so the king in the period that we're going to talk about this time, is uh, a very like critical time in this country's history, and we get to learn a lot about God through it. So the king at the time was a guy named Ahab, and for the rest of the talk, I'll call him the king, because why not? And he was married to a, a corrupt woman, and he was a corrupt man, uh, married to a corrupt woman named Jezebel, uh, and I'll refer to her as the king's wife, if that comes up. Um, so the time frame of when, where we're going to talk about today is it's 55 years after the nation of Israel, God's people, all rallied together and unified to build this temple. For, uh, for the living God to, to dwell in, although God never really asked for to be contained to uh, a house that's built by human people. But uh, it's 55 years ago after this big unifying thing, and there was a civil war that tore the, the country apart, so that's bad, and things were a mess. And the king that I told you about, Ahab, um, in order to make wifey happy, he actually built her a temple to a pagan god named Baal uh, in um, the capital there of the, that, that he was king over. And if you know anything about like the Old Testament, the Bible, like God, it's a big deal to the God we've come to know as he's revealed himself through the Bible uh, for people to replace a re living relationship with God to the empty following of a, an idol. So that's what they were doing, though, at this point. And that's a, that was a pretty humongous deal. Kurt, can you turn me down just a little bit? I'm getting a little feedback, I think. So uh, Baal was believed, the, the god that like now is penetrating their culture, was believed to be the god of rain and fertility. Anytime when you hear the god of fertility back in ancient days, it weirds me out a little bit. Just gonna be a, just gonna be real with you. So we're not gonna go with that kind of like fertility, like uh, Aphrodite style. We're talking like 
Fertility as in Baal, they believed, they prayed hard enough, made all the sacrifices enough. Baal would send rain that would produce the, the soil to be fertile in order for them to have plants, right? So that, that is the sense of fer uh, fertility that we're talking about there, to live off the land and obviously to have uh, water to drink. Uh, with the importance of rain in, in the dry Middle East, the people shifted their worship then from like the living God to like they had this practical need of water to, uh, and the king's wife uh, brought that God into the idol God into uh, this country. And so they chose instead to start to worship this empty idol called Baal. Um, in part, I think, too, because this idol wouldn't have anything to say about how they live either. So there's, there's something in that as well. But this was an issue with God because he's a relational God who created p human beings out of love. But the entire nation has shifted their, their culture entirely to worship, worshiping Baal. And so this is the history chapter, okay? Sponge getting full. Um, God sent, at that point, a prophet, which was somebody that would speak for him. And I know that's a little weird for us today, because that's not necessarily how things feel like they work. But uh, he sent a prophet that would, would bring his people back to himself out of the empty way of life of following a man-made God back to relationship with the living God. So the, the person was named Elijah. Everybody say Elijah. You're going to hear that name uh, a bit over the next couple of weeks. He's kind of like the main character, I guess, the main character study that we're going to be looking at. But the very first thing that um, we read about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 is that he was sent to talk to the king, so Ahab, the one that I told you about, a little bit ago, to let him know that a drought was about to happen, which is a little ironic that a, God sent a prophet to talk to the king who led people to worship a god of rain and fertility that the rain's about to stop. So why a drought? Uh, because God's people had turned away, because of everything I just said, right? That God was going to show them who the rain really comes from, not from Baal, but from the living God. So God, uh, Elijah told the king that the drought was coming and that it would last a couple years until Elijah said that it would stop. Cider drink break. Slurp or no slurp? Uh, for the rain not happening. So they were in a drought. Things weren't growing. The circumstances were terrible. And in fact, the king's wife, we're told, made it her mission because I guess there were like more prophets in in the like prophets of the living God in the the nation of Israel at this time, and she made it her job to kill them. She was like hunting them down so that Baal and the prophets of Baal could replace God and His word. So that is the history lesson. Got it? Got the context? Feeling good? Okay. One more slurp just to make sure you're feeling good. That help? Okay. So uh, here, here's Elijah's words to the people when he returned. He came back after three years of hiding, which is a risky thing to do because he risked his life. He could have been, they were searching to kill him, but God gave him the word that it's time 
to go back and talk to God's people to say this. When Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So his culture was wavering between these two things, between following an idol and following the lead of the living God. They didn't know what to say uh, to Elijah's, I guess, statement. So a showdown between Baal and between the living God was about to happen. Scene number two. It says this, and Elijah, is this where we're at? Okay, good. Lindsay's on it. Mm. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets, so a lot. That's, that's a 1 to, to 450 ratio, if you do the math. Um, but two bulls, get two bulls, so he's saying what the competition is going to be now, right? Get two bulls for us. I don't know who he's talking to, but uh, let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it uh, on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Next verse. Then you will call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So what we really have going on here is like WWE ref WrestleMania from the 1980s. Because you know at the end of, of that, it's going to end up being one guy versus 450 other wrestlers, right? Am I the only one with this uh, culture? Okay, I'm just going to keep going because it's fun for me. Uh, so one guy who puts everybody in the sleeper hole, comes off of the ropes, hits him with the elbow. Um, that's how WWE goes. So uh, me and my brothers used to, used to do that in our living room, and, and it never ended, ended well for me. So I'm going to move on. Uh, so this contest happens, okay? We're still in the showdown chapter here. This contest happens, and Elijah lets them go first because he's polite, except he's not. He liked to talk a lot of trash. So actually midway through, so uh, you understand the context here. All these people, these 450 prophets are praying to Baal to send fire to this thing, and Elijah lets them go first, and they're trying all this crazy stuff. And midway through the the, their attempt to do this, uh, Elijah like jumps in and is like, what's up? Is your God sleeping? Like, should we shoot him a text real quick? It's like me when I played Mario Kart uh, N64 as a kid. I was like, I was the best at it, but I was also really good at talking trash, uh, kind of like Elijah was here too. So uh, for the second half of their demonstration though, so Elijah steps in, talks a bunch of trash, steps back, and uh, they end up like mutilating, cutting themselves and doing a bunch of crazy stuff, tearing their clothes. They crank it up, praying to Baal to try and get this rain, but no, or excuse me, to get this fire, to ignite this flame. That's the contest, but no fire. Six hours of uh, religious ritual, clothes tearing, cutting themselves, nothing. Baal did not answer the call. Then it was Elijah's turn. He prepared the altar. Uh, and he, he actually built like a trench around it. Um, you know what a trench is? It's like a hole that is in the ground. Trench. I'm just making sure you know, okay? Because trench is a big word for some of us, um, for me. Uh, then then he, asked, uh, he asked them to drench his 
pile of wood with the, um, the bowl and stuff on it to drench, to drench it with water and to do it three times. He's trying to prove a point, right? He's a little cocky. Uh, so, so much so that the water around this altar that he was going to pray for God to ignite uh, would become full of water and probably blood because, you know, the whole bowl thing. But. So uh, he wanted to prove a point to his culture. So that's the thing there, his culture. Elijah disagreed and had friction and tension with his culture. And then he gave a simple prayer to God. And uh, as the story tells us, the living God set fire to the altar. It burnt up everything, even the water in the trenches. The Bible is cool, like really full of really cool details like that, right? You're like, oh, that's, that's mm, gangster right there. That's tight. So uh, Elijah won the contest. He was the WrestleMania champion of the world. Next talk will probably include less WrestleMania <laughs> references. So uh, afterwards, though, this is the in, an interesting turn in the story. So afterwards, so uh, the living God, Yahweh, uh, sets fire to this thing. Everybody sees it. Uh, they believe it. Um, and then Elijah tells them to do something a little crazy. So uh, he says to bring all the prophets of Baal uh, to a nearby, nearby valley and to slaughter them, all 450 of them. Now, we're coming at this from a modern lenses, so to us that definitely sounds like brutal and barbaric, and maybe it still would have been back then. Um, and that also is where the, like, my story of Mario Kart and this story differ. I've never, never gone to that level uh, when I've been playing Mario Kart with my friends. But uh, for many people... Um, turns like this in the Bible uh, are really challenging. And I just want to like relate to that and say it's challenging for me too. There's, there's other sections of scripture that include um, death. And, and sometimes uh, it seems like God is initiating that. And sometimes uh, maybe he's not. And this, this actually is, I think, one of those situations where God wasn't actually telling him to do that. Um, there's people who dedicate their lives to understanding uh, things like that. I'm taking time to tell you about this because if I were in your position, I would be a little distracted by the fact that God did this cool thing and then his prophet slaughtered 450 people. Uh, I do want to just show you this though. A couple of quotes from uh, some scholars on this. Uh, this is a guy named Gregory Golden Gay, uh, Old Testament scholar, he says, I wish Elijah hadn't killed all those other prophets. Maybe God feels the same. The story doesn't say that God told Elijah to do so, nor does it directly express uh, an opinion on doing so. There's another uh, quote from a New Testament or a Bible translator named Robert Alter. It says, the verb used for slaughtered is singular. So the slaughter is Elijah. He's the slaughterer there. There are four other verbs for killing. This particular verb is generally used for animals. Elijah is as ruthless in his zealotry for Yahweh as Ahab is in pagan depositism. Despot, thank you. Despotism. So it kind of appears that Ahab took matters into his own hands by slaughtering the prophets of Baal by himself. Whereas uh, God is patient with people to return to himself 
I have a lot more I want to say about this subject, and I'm actually just going to kind of move on. But I wanted, I wanted to just address the fact that sometimes in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, there's times when death is talked about in tough ways, and it's okay to wrestle with that. Okay? So, um, immediately after that, though, Elijah tells the king to eat a quick dinner because the sound of rain was coming. It, says, it actually says he put his head between his legs. I don't know if he was like looking upside down that way or something, but uh, and the, he had his assistant uh, look out over the water to see if there was a cloud coming, and then there was like this little cloud, and that's when he's like, hey, everybody better like clear out because the rain is coming. There's been this drought, but God has answered now, and the rain is coming back. So the drought was over. But... That did not change the king's nor his wife's heart. They still wanted to kill Elijah. They still wanted him dead. And so I'm, at this point, Elijah has done what he thought God wanted him to do. And maybe he, he wasn't instructed to do the, the slaughtering. Maybe he was. I don't know. But uh, he comes to this moment where he feels like a fresh start is about to happen. And I think that's true because of what happens next. He finds out, uh, and he is afraid for his life. He runs. He thought that he was doing the right thing the right way, and he thought that this moment would provide a fresh start, that he could finally feel peace, he didn't have to run anymore, and he could rest, and neither were actually true. So it says this, uh, that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He won the contest, did the whole thing. When he came to Beersheba, so we're actually in chapter 3 right now, the uh, segment, whatever I said at the beginning. <laughs> While uh, he went, him, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, so he's running into the wilderness, he, while it's raining, by the way, uh, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he says. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Elijah was done. He was burnt out. Have you ever been there? So let me pause to ask you a question then. Maybe you are anticipating a fresh start. Uh, maybe you've been trying to do the right thing and neither have worked out. So what are you running from? Can you relate to either one of those things that Elijah was facing, that a failed, a failed attempt to like save people on his own or a failed attempt to like finally have a fresh start? Are you running from people that you no longer agree with? Are you tired of trying to save the world? Are you scared because you're exhausted when you should feel like you're refreshed? It's the fall. It's the fresh start, right? But are you on the brink of burnout right now? I always love moments like this in the Bible when somebody runs and tries to like get away from the problems because... Uh, that's where Elijah was, and that's, honestly, that's where we find ourselves a lot of times. Trying to do the right thing, and maybe not doing it well, and hoping for 
a fresh start and maybe not getting it yet. Let's read the next verses, though. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep, exhausted in the middle of the wilderness. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there, his head was, there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again, took another nap. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, So he got up and ate, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights, symbolic number there, until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, which is where it's Mount Sinai. That's where Moses actually, oh, so much stuff I'd love to tell you that I'm going to skip right now um, about that. But maybe maybe I'll do it next week. We'll see. So we're going to go to that mountain in a second. But I want you to notice something, that God met Elijah while he was on the run. God met a person who was running away. Maybe running away from his responsibilities. Maybe running away because he was guilty. A person who collapsed under a tree in the wilderness. God woke him up, not to drag him by the ear back to where he should be, but to give him food. (laughs) That's a kind thing to do to somebody who's running away especially if he is the only prophet, the only real like voice for God in this country. Elijah was not told by God to run away, but neither are we. Here we find God providing for Elijah while he's on the run. But God let him rest. Think about that. Take another nap. Eat some bread. Take another nap. Lay back down. You need your strength to run to a place that I didn't tell you to go. What? God gave grace, even the gift of rest, to a person running away. It doesn't mean that God wanted him to stay there or that God wanted him to keep running. But it does mean that God can tend to your heart. Hear me on this, please. God can tend to your heart in the most unlikely of circumstances, which might be the one you're in today. The last part, so we're in part four now. Here we go. Is my favorite part of the story. Moving the chair. Stool. Um, I hope you're still hanging with me, okay? So Elijah wakes up from his nap under the bush, and he keeps running, like I said. He's going to go towards this mountain. The total distance that he runs is 104 miles. So this is a person who is running as far away as they can possibly get. This is a person who is just done with it all. Pick up right here. There he went into a cave in the mountain and spent the night. I love this. Ugh. And the word of the Lord came to him. Where, what are you doing here, Elijah? We still have this voice of God meeting this person who's in a cave, in isolation, who doesn't want to be around anybody, who has had it and is done. 
what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied. Now he has the speech that he's prepared. He's had a 104-mile run to prepare the speech. It says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. He started out running. He had the pit stop nap under the tree. But it seems like the place that Elijah really wanted to go was this cave, in this cave to die. He's done. And that is where God meets him with, the, with that pro- We can find ourselves climbing into a cave, turning off the lights, and feeling convinced that we are all alone. So in response to Elijah finding himself there, saying that he feels like he's the only one, he's ready to die, God says this. The Lord said, go out. So he's still speaking to Elijah in the cave. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire, there it is again, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? God didn't want Elijah to die alone in a cave. God had more. God wanted to draw Elijah out with a whisper. And I like to imagine that it's actually like God whispering his name, like, He draws Elijah out to see that God is in the quiet. God is gently calling Elijah to take a step out of the cave. God's power is still like on display in the wind and the earthquake and the fire and everything else displayed in this thing, but God chose to meet Elijah in a non-intimidating whisper. God's invitation to Elijah was to take a step towards him and realize that he's not alone. In fact, when when Elijah steps out and then gives instructions uh, to Elijah about what's going to come next, because God is all about next steps, uh, and at the end of the instruction, God reminds Elijah that he is not alone. Even though he feels like he is, he's saying he's alone, but he's not. It says this. God says, yet I reserve 7,000. There's 7,000 other people, Elijah, that, uh, whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 7,000 other people who are, are with you. 
So turning to you again, my friends, I just want to tell you that you're not alone. You're not, and I think a lot of you know that you're not. Because there's been circumstances in the lives of many in this room that could make you want to go run, jump, and hide in a cave. But you're not alone. First of all, you've got a God that's there in the cave with you. But you've also got a group of people here that love you and that will meet you where you're at as well. Whatever cave you find yourself in, God will meet you there and he's not done with your story. And this community called Wyoming Harbor is here for you every week, every day, but every, every week to remind you of that. So the, the series is called Creating a Next Steps Culture. And over the next few weeks, we'll be talking more uh, about uh, steps that you can take towards God. Like Elijah stepped, he stepped out <laughs> to hear God's voice. A uh, team at Harvard Churches has helped us to name seven like, different types of steps that you can take uh, to walk towards God. So the question that, that I want to ask you today that I think we'll keep revisiting over the next couple of weeks is what is your next step with God? Today, the next step I want to invite you into, which, which might seem strange with the story that we've used here, but we're talking about a man that goes into isolation that wants to die alone. And God tells him that there's more. The next step that I want to invite us all into is to gather, to come back. You're going to be the church when you go. We're about to end the service and the church continues through you because church is the people gathered and scattered. But I want to invite everybody back next week to continue to take a step out of the cave and realize that you're not alone. I want to close uh, by telling you a story of a lady that I met this week. Um, when she was nine years old, you guys can come up, Philip. You're good. Um, when she was nine years old, her dad asked her to cut his hair. Uh, nine years old, so she was young. She had no idea how to do it, but he trusted her with it. Um, and for years after that, uh, her dad told her that she needed to go to school to be a, a hairstylist. Um, she never really went after it. She told me that she got married young, had kids to take care of. They moved to the US from Mexico when she was like 32, 35 or something, uh, which required a lot of energy um, to learn English and a new culture. Uh, six years ago, her dad passed away. And four years ago, she decided to finally go to hair school. Her dad was her inspiration. Uh, she didn't know uh, English, how to read English in the textbook, and she couldn't afford the textbooks on her own. Uh, so she had to trust the memory of her dad's encouragement and just take a step. So she did. And she passed all the tests. She got her hair cutting license. And yesterday, she gave me a haircut. Her advice to us is that it's never too late. And you just have to do something. You have to take a step. God will speak to you in the cave. But he has so much more if you're willing to take a step. 
be like her. She didn't stay in the, in the cave. She took a courageous step, and now she's doing the thing that she loves and that she believes she was created to do. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anybody uh, in here who is feeling this, that uh, is in a cave because they've been forced into it or because they ran up to it themselves, uh, regardless of why my friend might find themselves isolated in a cave. I pray that you will meet them there. Sometimes maybe we want to see you appear in a big sign or a shooting star or whatever it is, Lord, but I pray, like you did for Elijah, that in this moment you will meet my friends with a whisper. Meet them with a whisper. Remind them that they're known by name, that they're fearfully and wonderfully made, that you have good plans still, and it's not to die in the cave. It's to call them out into the next step you have for their life.